This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Chief Washington correspondent for the New York Times, Carl Hulse has covered legislative and judicial events for more than three decades. His important new book is a deeply researched and reported account of the struggle over the Supreme Court seat left vacant by Antonin Scalia's death in February 2016. Drawing on exclusive interviews with key figures, from Mitch McConnell to Trump campaign operatives to court activists and legal scholars, Hulse traces the polarizing political battle that began with the Senate Republicans' refusal to grant a hearing to Obama's nominee Merrick Garland and concluded with a confirmation in April 2017 of Trump's candidate Neil M. Gorsuch. Putting this episode in the larger context of governmental paralysis, Hulse traces the judicial wars of the last 20 years and charts the loss of bipartisan procedures across all three presidential or federal branches. Uh, He will be in conversation tonight with Maureen Dowd, the op-ed columnist for the New York Times. Please help me welcome them both to Politics and Press. Thank you. That book sounds... Are we on here? Can you hear us? Are we good? That book sounds great. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for coming. I know there's a debate. Can you guys hear us? Yeah. Okay. Speak close. Speak close. Speak close. All right. Um, thank you. Uh, I know we all have to do the debate scoot at the end. And thank you for having us as your amuse-bouche for the debate. (laughs) And we will talk fast and furious and get out of here in time. And, uh, just to tell you a little bit about Carl, this is his first book, (laughs) even though... Thank you. Even though he has been the most knowledgeable person about Capitol Hill in Washington for 30 years, and I'm including the senators, they come to him to find out what's going on. And I've seen it. And uh, Carl, you know, we're obviously in a period of uh, crazy apocalyptic cascading news. And uh, Carl has always operated on the motto, bad for the world, good for Carl. I'm sorry. I know that sounds terrible, but... That's how journalists think. That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. All right. So let's get going. Uh, Before we start on the book, although it's related to the book, today was kind of an epic day in news for Carl's two specialties, the Supreme Court and the House. So I thought we would just address what happened today in both those areas because... Okay, don't fall asleep, but Carl is also the world's living expert on gerrymandering. (laughs) And I once saw him uh, spellbind a crowd of Canadian students with a half-hour explanation on the history of gerrymandering. So you're in good hands here. So uh, I do live on Capitol Hill, and I don't know, I tweeted this out today, but... Uh, Elbridge Gary, weirdly his name is pronounced with a hard G, is buried on Capitol Hill in Congressional Cemetery. So you can actually go over there to his grave, and it's actually very nicely laid out. There's no weird permutations in it, but they probably they probably should have done that. Uh, you know, Congressional sec- uh, Cemetery is famous because you let your dogs run there, but I never let my dog uh, do what he needed to do at Elbridge Gary's grave because I had respect. Because uh, also we had J. Edgar Hoover's grave. Hoover's grave was a different story. <laughs> uh, so anyway, obviously the book was timed 
honestly, to hit this week because we knew the Supreme Court would be coming down with a bunch of decisions. And they did come down uh, with one big decision today, the 5-4, on uh, gerrymandering, not gerrymandering, and up saying basically that the court had no role in uh, interfering, and you can basically be as partisan as you like in gerrymandering, you probably can't be racist in gerrymandering. They've already decided that earlier, but you can be highly partisan. But I think the news for me today about that, that wasn't surprising in Roberts and uh, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. And this is probably one of those cases, an example where Kennedy was a little different. Kennedy never really wanted to uh, get involved in this, and he probably would have taken a different tack. So this is one of those decisions, highly political decision by the court, that's really different because of uh, the presence of Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. But the interesting thing was afterwards, Mitch McConnell, who's obviously a major character in my book and uh, pulled off one of the great heists of all time. And he, he... the interesting thing about this today was he celebrated this decision, which, but I, I'm going to be writing a piece for Sunday where I say, as, as he should, because he created this court that's, that made this decision today. But uh, this is the interesting thing that Mitch said today was about what he would do in, we all watched the debate last night, right? Mitch McConnell turned out to be the villain of the debate as opposed to Trump. And he really embraced that today. You know, this is the kind of thing that Mitch likes. Mitch is running for re-election. It's going to be one of the few re-election election campaigns where the negative ads and the positive ads are going to be the same ad, right? <laughs> Democrats are going to attack him for blocking things. He's going to take credit for blocking things. They could basically run the same ad. But so he, he was asked today, and I think this is an actual possibility, he said he was asked, okay, Democrat in the White House, you're still the majority leader. What do you do in the first year of a Democratic presidency if if one of the liberal justices quits? Will you entertain a uh, nominee by the new Democratic president? And Mitch graciously said, of course we'll entertain it. It's politically unsustainable to hold off a nominee. We would have here, now we would have hearings and votes, but we may not confirm that person, right? So uh, really interesting. He changed a little bit today. But so the, the, the other interesting thing, and we'll move on to the book, was that John Roberts is determined not to have the court look partisan. So he's contorting himself on all these decisions, on the census decision, to make the court look not partisan. But in doing that, he actually looks extremely political. But I thought it was interesting today that John Roberts was being attacked from the right for the census decision. He really can't win. The guy's in a tough position. And if uh, there was another vacancy on the court and Trump got that a chance to fill that vacancy, uh, I saw the eyes roll there. Uh, Roberts could become sort of irrelevant on the court because there is, that would make five other conservatives. Uh, so a lot going on in court world, and uh, there's a few things to come tomorrow, probably on DACA. But didn't McConnell also brush back Nancy Pelosi today? Yes. Well, he, uh, so this was over the immigration uh, legislation. Uh, Pelosi caved and is accepting uh, the 
the Senate bill on humanitarian assistance. And there was a big dispute at work, kind of. We had this discussion about whether this was really terrible for Pelosi to relent. I was on the side that it was a pragmatic decision. They needed to get the money. The bill negotiated in the Senate was negotiated between Pat Leahy, uh, the Democrat, and Richard Shelby. And, you know, they get to go home now and say they've actually done something, which is pretty unusual. But the analysts on CNN were saying that this brings Pelosi to the moment where Paul Ryan and John Boehner yeah, were no, there I, with the Tea Party caucus. Right. Where- I think there is some of that. However, she also complied with the Hastert rule. You guys are all hardcore here. More than half of more than half of her caucus voted with her. So I think, you know, it was hard for her to swallow, but I think that, you know, it's not some big insurmountable setback. And in a few days, people will go, well, at least we got money down to the border. Yeah, but those young members are dissing her again. You know, it doesn't really hurt her that much sometimes to be seen as not really going along with the super progressives. So obviously, Maureen and I disagree on this, but... (laughs) I don't disagree. I just, I think it's... uh, you know, it's a fascinating narrative to watch Nancy Pelosi be, you know, pushing back against uh, progressives when she used to be the caricature yeah. of the progressives. Right. Now, Nancy Pelosi was AOC before AOC was AOC. Right. And now she's now she's in the middle. Now she's in the middle. Um, so, Mitch McConnell, evil genius or just evil? <laughs> You know, he would take either of those, honestly. <laughs> he would he, tell about the wall in his office. Well, so in his in his state office, he has a whole wall in his personal office of all the really bad editorial cartoons that have been done. He embraces that. Uh, Mitch McConnell is just a guy who's about winning. He's a, a win winning guy. He's not that caught up in the policy. He's caught up in being heck out of the other side and winning it. And he's gotten very good at that. And he's getting a little smug, honestly. I was watching his press conference today. It's like, boy, Mitch is really feeling it. You know, here he is at the middle of the presidential debate. He's being attacked more during the debates than, uh, than Trump. And there's a good reason for that, because if Trump's defeated, he's gone. If, if Democrats are there, if, Mitch, if a Democrat is in the White House and Mitch McConnell is still the majority leader of the Senate, not, not much is going to happen. You know, the Democrats would need to get the Senate to really make things happen. And it's going to be hard. If you look at the electoral map, it's not good for them. And, uh, you know, they can't. I, uh, Jay Inslee last night said, well, we got to take the filibuster away from Mitch McConnell. Well, you can only do that if you have the Senate. Richard Baker, who is the former Senate historian, is here, knows more about this stuff than I do. But he would agree on that point, I'm sure. Uh, so Mitch likes to win. It's really about winning for him. And he, he he's really into that. But he likes he likes being the Darth Vader. And now he's 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 really kind of uh, putting that blanket around him. But this one thing that bothers him, he doesn't like being called a hypocrite for some reason. Uh, he, he, that, wow, that, that, I wonder why. That really, that really gets to him. You know, they like to think there's some principled decisions here. So uh, he would go with evil genius, not evil hypocrite. Uh, Carl has left me with a terrifying image in my head of Mitch McConnell on the beach. <laughs> which he has in his book, The Dark Lord of Senate, you know, having a pina colada in St. Thomas. So 
the day Scalia died, uh, he was happened to be on his annual beach outing vacation over the President's Day holiday. So he's down in, I think, St. Thomas uh, with his wife. And I say in the book that it's it's just hard to envision Mitch as sort of a beach guy, you know? <laughs> he would definitely be out there with the sandals and black socks. No doubt about that. So he's there. He's there, and he gets the news. And in the book, they, also, they actually got an early heads up because one of uh, Justice Scalia's... Uh, children called um, McCon- or called Leonard Leo, who, of course, is another main character in the book of the Federalist Society. Leonard Leo gets the call and he's thinking, wow, something really happened bad to uh, Justice Scalia if they're calling me. And then he soon realized how bad it was. And uh, so McConnell's people immediately set in motion the political strategy behind uh, barring Obama from making a nomination. And the reason they did that and acted so quickly because there was a Republican presidential debate that night, a primary debate in South Carolina. And the thinking in the McConnell camp was that Ted Cruz is still competitive with Trump at this point and is conservative. It's sort of it's attacking Trump, suggesting that Trump might uh, nominate liberal judges to the court because his sister was a semi-liberal federal judge in Pennsylvania. So they knew they had to act really quick because if uh, Ted Cruz is the first guy to say we have to block Obama, no one's going to want to go along with that because no one likes Ted Cruz. So they acted really quickly. That kind of drove a lot of the decisions that night, That the fact that uh, there was a debate. The great thing about Carl's book, um, which is it's really a wonderful book, is it's such a great narrative that you kind of forget the the horrible ending and you're kind of thinking, oh, maybe this will come out okay. It's that kind of driving, <laughs> like, President Obama, do this, you know. But also, which I hadn't realized, you can see the whole prism of everything that's been wrong through this story. You can see President Obama's limitations as a politician. You can see Joe Biden's limitations as a politician. I mean, every, it's a microcosm. And the main thing, which I've been agonizing about since the Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill hearings. Which Maureen covered and uh, really sort of established the feminism aspect of that. Yeah, you can see the horrible dynamic that Republicans and Democrats have been in since then, where Democrats are trying to play fair or trying to do what they think is the right thing and Republicans are playing to win. And then when you win, you have everything. So, you know, unless they can break out of that kind of S&M relationship. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, that wasn't a question. I just want to say it. it <laughs> You know, it is a great book. So um, they told us we could bring our wine out here. So excuse me. Yeah, usually I have to. They tell us not to. Yeah, usually I have to take Xanax to do public speaking. So I'm trying to get (laughs) off of the drugs because it's so scary. But tonight, Carl has the heavy lifting. So, um, you know, what's also interesting about the book is the interplay of personalities and how that affects history in these epic ways. So the two things that stick in the craw of Mitch McConnell and Chuck Grassley, who could have turned the whole thing around, are Obama, Obama's habit of lecturing, 
And uh, Grassley was very upset with Obama doing executive orders. So how did that affect what happened? Yeah, so uh, Mitch McConnell really, really, really did not like being lectured to by Barack Obama. And he found himself constantly being lectured to. Uh, McConnell and the old timers like Grassley in the Senate did not think Obama was a serious senator. He got there with the intention of running. They call him sort of a drive-by senator. And in my book, I note that uh, McConnell would get on the phone with Obama. And there's this one instance where he kind of put the phone down and watched an entire inning of a baseball game before Obama stopped talking. <laughs> Obama, that was his, he was very professorial and that's kind of the way he, he wanted to deal with things. And Obama, uh, McConnell hated that. So that, you know, he did, McConnell did not think that Obama was a serious guy. He thought he was a neophyte. And he actually, and, and said this today again, Mitch McConnell thinks and says off and some of the, today was sort of political, but he thought Obama was truly going to make um uh, the United States into a socialist Western European Republic. And this is how he, he sees himself as the guardian against that. Now, Grassley, uh, they became very worried because they wouldn't cooperate with Obama. Obama's doing executive orders. Remember his famous, uh, I've got my phone and my pen line. And they go, and now Obama's going to get a chance. This was a huge thing. The Democrats were going to get a chance to totally reshape the court. They were going to get the upper hand here. And the Republicans freaked out about that. And uh, they thought, here's this court's going to come in. Obama's doing all these executive orders. And this court, the Supreme Court, is then going to uphold them all. And Grassley's an interesting character in the book. Uh, Mr. Baker, you know, we've known him a long time. You know, he's known for his oversight. But what happened to Chuck Grassley is Iowa changed politically. Iowa used to be a pretty progressive state, and even the Republicans were good government Republicans. The Iowa Republican Party, it's indisputable, was taken over by the religious right. And Grassley, who was sort of a bipartisan guy, liked to do bipartisan oversight, was under a lot of pressure. And, you know, you'll remember during the health care debate, Grassley was actually participating in a lot of talks with Democrats to get a bipartisan health care bill. The reason the ACA is the way it is is because they were trying to woo Chuck Grassley. And once he realized out in Iowa that, that the idea of being bipartisan wasn't a good thing anymore, he became highly partisan. And uh, the rest is history and made today at the Supreme Court. Uh, Obama joked at the 2013 White House Correspondents' Dinner that people said he should reach across the aisle more and get a drink with Mitch McConnell. And he said, why don't you get a drink with Mitch McConnell? Yeah. Yeah. I, and if you could have a drink with Mitch McConnell and he was being honest with you, what does he really think of Donald Trump? <laughs> I think... I think... Mitch McConnell thinks Donald Trump is really probably not his kind of guy. Uh, you know, they're very different people. His wife, though, however, worked for Donald Trump. I think that Mitch McConnell is really happy. I have a story coming on this in a few days. And a lot of Senate Republicans are really happy with what Trump is doing. They're not that happy with how he does it and what he says about doing it. You know, it's like a personality difference to them. But so Trump gets in 2017, probably January, February, and I go in to interview Mitch McConnell, and it's during the uh, 
travel ban. You remember what the first six weeks of the Trump administration were like. I mean, it was American carnage, right? Yeah, Carl <laughs> Carl was the first one to say it was um, federal daycare. Yeah, federally funded daycare. So I, everybody in town is freaking out across the country, and I go in to see Senator McConnell in his really nice office, kind of around where the British started to burn the Capitol, by the way. Uh, it's actually the same space. Uh, and I said, Senator, are, are you going to save the country? Everyone's, everyone thinks it's up to you to save the country. And he goes, save the country? We're happy with this. They were worried Trump was going to be a Democrat, you know, that he ran as a Republican. They were actually going, well, he's kind of doing the same things that Marco Rubio would have done. He's just doing them in a more bizarre, haphazard fashion. And it's kind of continued that way the entire time. Constantly, our... Uh, overlords in New York are always asking us, you know, when are the Republicans going to break with Trump? What's what's the deal? And I'm like, they're not going to break with Trump. They actually, they might not be thrilled about his tactics and behavior, but they're okay with the outcome. But what about what we heard recently that a lot of people in Capitol Hill like him because he's calling yeah, no, and talking well, that's, to them, yeah, unlike Obama. I had a uh, major U.S. senator the other day say, oh, Trump's kind of endearing. You know, and he does have this. You won't read this. <laughs> yeah, he does have this style, you know, but he's very accessible. They can all call him on the phone. He watches them on TV. Little things count, you know, with members. I, I know it sounds really tr trite and trivial, but they th these people are huge egomaniacs and they like to be stroked. And they like to be able to go to their friends. Oh, I can't show up tonight. I'm going over to the Oval. I got to talk to the president, especially the people that they're dealing with. Their constituents are happy with Trump. Yeah, exactly. So um, uh, Trump had a quote during the campaign. If you don't like me, you have to vote for me anyway. You know why? Supreme Court judges. No choice. Sorry. And it isn't as uh, stupid as it sounds because it was true. And in Carl's book, Trump comes across as savvier than you would expect. And in fact, the New York Times Review praised you for not being a knee-jerk, you know, Trump hater. And how, what was your opinion of how he handled this thing from the beginning? Well, the Trump, Trump, Trump got, got this. And beca maybe because his sister was a federal court judge, uh, that he kind of understood a little bit just instinctively. I'm not saying he had a really great, thorough understanding of it, because at one point he talked about his, how his sister and uh, Sam Alito had signed the same bill in the book. And I'm like, eh, they don't really sign bills. But he knew, he knew that the judiciary was going to be an important thing for him. And he knew that it was helping him solidify uh, evangelical support and conservative support because the Republicans and conservatives, I'm sure some here, they just vote more on the Supreme Court than Democrats have. So this was at the night that quote that Maureen just read was the night Hillary was accepting the nomination and Trump is out in Iowa. And he actually does this great thing where he's like, you know, if you love me, that's great. But if you hate me, you still have to vote for me because I'm going to deliver the judges. And it really worked. And so in the book, I also talk about how the Democrats never mentioned the name in their entire convention in Philadelphia. They never mentioned the name Merrick Garland. They never did a thing about Garland during that thing. They thought that was a tactical decision. They go, we don't want to politicize this. It was a mistake. Yeah, you said Garland could have used his own John Stewart. Yeah, yeah, because John Stewart actually got Mitch to turn around the other day. So 
here was the problem, and it's changed history. I actually took a book to Mitch McConnell, grabbed him in the hall, and I said, hey, Senator, here's the book. You know, we've been talking about, I hate to do Mitch McConnell impersonations, but it's, he says, he says, I bet I don't come out too good in that book. <laughs> and I said, Senator, you know, it's pretty straightforward. And I signed the book to him. I said, you changed history. And that, but I told him, I said, I'm not saying which way. Uh, but he, here, was, here was the issue. And no one thought Trump was going to win. Mitch McConnell was doing this to solidify his position on the right. If it worked out, fine. But he was, no one expected Trump to win. Trump didn't expect Trump to win. Everybody, the Democrats fought. They didn't fight as hard as they should have because they go, we're either going to get Merrick Garland, who, by the way, is an incredible public servant who didn't deserve the treatment he got, or we're going to have an even uh, younger, more liberal judge that Hillary Clinton is going to nominate. And that drove this whole thing. And that's where you have to be careful in, on your expectation game. We actually have a good uh, insight into why everyone was lulled into complacency because we went over to Trump Tower to see Trump's campaign headquarters and have lunch with him in, uh, what was that, June, June of 2016. And there's one anecdote about the budget and Paul Ryan, which tells you why no one thought Trump was going to win. Well, so I said to, he, I don't know, we were into conversation and I said, well, you know, I need to ask about Ryan. And I said, well, you know, he can't even get his budget passed. And he's like, really? Yeah, Is Trump that happening? Goes, really? Trump didn't know his, the he, budget wasn't passed. He had no campaign apparatus, you know, in Trump Tower. He had a floor. They didn't even have, yeah. they didn't just, even have drywall up. No, it was just Michael Cohen. Yes, lurking around. And Corey Lewandowski <laughs> and Hope Hicks lurking in a room with no drywall. Yeah, there that was, was the whole campaign. That was their entire campaign. And I go, wow. And But Trump was proud of this because he's like, well, Hillary's spending all this money and has all these people and I have this, right? And we're like, wow, I've never seen a campaign like that. There was, Trump never thought he was going to win. So McConnell is in the book uh, on election night. They are doing their big uh, event over at the National Republican Senatorial Committee over by Union Station. And, you know, they all, they expected to lose the Senate. I had talked to their people. They're like, oh, Russ Feingold's coming back. Ron Johnson's going to lose. They had no expectation of winning. And as the night progressed, McConnell is at this party and says, they're watching the results, as were we on our little ticker. I'm sure some of you have feelings about that. notorious ticker. Uh, and McConnell says, are we going to make America great again tonight? Because they did not think they were going to win. And, you know, that night I'm in New York. We cover elections from New York. And I, my first thought was, wow, there, there's the big change in the Supreme Court. And that's what happened. So uh, you're in a band. One of my band members. One of my band members is here somewhere. <laughs> Larry. <There he> is. <laughs> lead, lead guitarist. And so is Don McGann. Yeah. <laughs> and Don McGann is a really fascinating figure. Uh, because he's in a feud with Trump. Trump hates him, even though he has provided Trump with his most lasting legacy. Yeah, it's really, we're not in the same band. Actually, Don's band, Don's band is better than ours, for sure. Uh, Don McGahn is at the, at the heart of this uh, story. And he's a guy who... Uh, very partisan, also very Catholic. You read the book, there's a real Catholic uh, element of this. But the, because we're going to change the questions here in a minute. Uh, <laughs> we're, in, 
So McGann, McGann He's is... He's always stealing my questions. So McGann, here's McGann who comes in and he really wants to do this. Don McGann is a driven person, but he's not driven, you know, by abortion and things. Don McGann is driven by wanting to tear down what they call the administrative state. And this is where you're going to see the decisions in the years ahead. They want to reduce the power of the federal bureaucracy. Kavanaugh and Gorsuch have written a lot of opinions along those lines. Gorsuch's mother, Anne Gorsuch, who was driven out of town during the Reagan administration, was uh, is actually at the heart of one of the big Supreme Court decisions on federal power called the Chevron deference, but we don't need to get into that. But the day of uh, Gorsuch's hearing, this was a terrible moment in the life of the Gorsuch family. His mother was humiliated. People went to jail. She had to go back to Colorado. And I walked into the hearing, and this is in the book, and I I said to the White House guys who I knew who were around the, the back of the room, I said, you know, I have a theory about Gorsuch. And they go, what's that? I said, he's still mad about what happened to his mother, and he wants to destroy Washington. And they go, that's our theory, too. Uh, so McGahn, uh, he delivers all these judges for President Trump. And also, I would argue, saved Trump actually from clearly being impeached by refusing to go ahead and uh, get Mueller fired or fire somebody at the FBI. And But Trump hates him now. And, uh, of course, they're in a big fight. But Don, uh, Don's a pretty savvy guy, and he, he really delivered. And he really, a big theme of the book is how determined he was to get Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. And at, at sometimes during the worst of the Kavanaugh fight, he was the only guy who was still trying to get Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. So reading your book, reading. We're going to switch to questions. One more. You're. <laughs> okay. Yes. He's doing a George H.W. Bush thing and looking at his watch. (laughs) Reading your book, I began worrying about the Catholic deep state, all kicked off by the death of Scalia while at the ranch of what Carl describes as a well-heeled Catholic outdoorsman. Prominent Catholic Don McGahn of Georgetown and Notre Dame who teed off Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, who went to Georgetown Prep. Now six of the nine justices are Catholic. You're Catholic. I'm Catholic. Is this a Dan Brown novel that ends in the Vatican? <laughs> well, I, I love the fact that you're part of the Catholic deep state. Yeah. I, I, it's just a fact. I don't know. Hard to explain. I, I honestly think that uh, anti-abortion... Uh, ideology is a part of this, but there's there is a serious uh, Catholic sort of mafia, which is probably not another t- term I should be using, that is uh, driving this. And I think you're going to continue to see that. I mean, Amy Coney Barrett, who is a likely next candidate for the Supreme Court, also a very uh, devout conservative Catholic. Conservative Catholics are having a big role on the Supreme Court right now. Well, on that happy note, we're going to switch to questions. Thank you. So I don't know how they want you. Oh, there's, there's, looks like there's mics here. So whoever ha- whoever has a question. Wait, you have to go. You have to go to the mic. Hi. You can have mic. You go line up behind them. No wait. Hello. Hello. Okay. So I just. Wait. Hi. He's first. Oh. There's a line. 
Okay. Yeah. This is about uh, Mitch McConnell. Why is acting like this in spite of a child president in the White House, <laughs> Mr. Maureen Dovid? Your column about that. The apricot toddler. Yeah, toddler. toddler. <laughs> and uh, the reason there was a news article uh, some, some weeks ago by the New York Times, how he's indebted to the, the wife, wife having uh, the... Yeah father shipping Gassing line and uh, sh the father, the whole family supporting uh, or uh, financing the election of Mitch McConnell. Is there anything with that where uh, Senator, we all expected him to actually to, you know, uh, crack down on Mitch. like a policeman to the president, but nowhere in the last 40 years I've been following this politics. I'm a news junkie of New York Times and Washington Post. And uh, it is so surprising, uh, Senate Major. I've read about uh, Tiponil and Reagan's uh, friendship. They will be fighting oh, each yeah. other. Yeah, what's the question? So the question is, what do you think about this? This is my theory, whether he is indebted, whether there is something financially to be exposed. So he's playing it cool without disturbing on the advice of the wife, who is a control. Okay, what up. do you think? I, I will say this. Mitch McConnell has gotten rich in office. Uh, his wife's family is rich. Mitch McConnell is a super careful guy. I doubt if there is anything that you could really find where they have appearances are terrible, ethics are uh, fungible, probably not anything illegal there because they're super careful. I do think there was a big mistake with Elaine Chow, and I think in some of the travel arrangements that she made and was trying to get her family to uh, be on this trip with her, I think that they slipped up because they're usually so careful because this is such a delicate situation. And I think it was they bad staffing. It's put a lot of sunlight on them, but I don't expect anything uh, really big to come out of it, honestly. Thank you. Ma'am. Well, I have some dirt on Mitch McConnell. Well... <laughs> This isn't a federal thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I grew up in eastern Kentucky. No, you have to come closer. Closer to this? May I sing? Okay. Um, yeah, well, in my family and in my neighborhood, and I think in the whole state, he's credited with some really bad things. Um, I hold him responsible for the death of my nephew. I think of him as a murderer. Um and unfortunately, that's that like 16th, a mining thing or something. No, um, my nephew was killed in a car accident um, going around a curve, hit a very slow moving coal truck that did not have an underride bar. This was 1994, and a law was passed in Kentucky in 1972 requiring underride bars under all of these big trucks to prevent the types of accidents that had been reported by the police. The ambulance people, the emergency room doctors, the pathologists, people were having such severe head injuries and some were being decapitated, as was my nephew, who happened to be a child in the family that was so dysfunctional. He was one of those children who parented his parents, and the entire extended family crashed out. So, not to, after. Not to minimize that at all, but so where's McConnell's The Republican role? Party... And Mitch McConnell, as head of it forever, apparently 
told all of the companies they did not need to conform to that rule and told the state police to not enforce it. And I only yep. know that because my, my brother, the father of the boy, who was a young Republican, interrogated everybody he could. And it was the Republican Party who told them, this was a business thing, this is a capitalist thing, we're Christians, you don't have to pay for those underwrite bars. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. I, I'm sure that there's a lot of things like that that went on. Mitch McConnell's been up for re-election, and he manages to win. And he's up for re-election this year. So... You know, I think if you heard what was in the debate last night, there's going to be an effort by the Democrats. But he's tough to beat. He's tough. He's tough. He spends a lot of money. And uh, we'll see what happens. But yeah, thank Tim you for Ryan your- last night was saying we have to figure out how to kick his rear end out of Kentucky. But I have no actual position on that. <laughs> okay. Hey. Yeah. Um, I'm a retired professor from um, George Mason University. And um, as you probably know, uh, the Charles Koch Foundation has given our university over $100 million, about 20 times as much as any other university. And they then have several uh, centers at the university, uh, including the Law and Economics Center, and more recently, the Center for the Study of the Administrative State, and of course, uh, Scalia. School of Law. Brett Kavanaugh, I think, is actually going to be a summer school teacher for them. He is. He is. Um, And uh, this is a public university, and it gives a veneer of respectability to all of this. Um, My question is, how important is the university and our taxpayer dollars for um, uh, helping determine our Supreme Court, who's on it? Yeah, I I do think that uh, George Mason in this area has become like a conservative feeder, right? And a lot of conservative theory is developed there. Kavanaugh's working there. I mean, the Kochs have a huge influence and have been tight with uh, Mitch McConnell. They're changing a little bit right now. They don't like some of the uh, Trump things that they're seeing. Uh, They really don't like tariffs a lot. They, they don't like tariffs. So you're seeing a little bit of friction between them. But yeah, I think George Mason University in this region is an important uh, conservative outlet and a lot of conservative thought is developed there. And Kavanaugh uh, is going to be teaching there, but he's going to be in Europe. So uh, they've decided to go ahead with that. There was a big there was a big blow up about that, though. Uh, Mitch McConnell. Um, I'm an attorney. Like the debate. Everybody wants to talk about Mitch. Well, because Trump will be gone. If, if I mean, hopefully it would be nice if it were tomorrow. Um, it would be great if he were beaten and then he could be indicted. Um, but, um, I mean, at the end of six years, whatever, these judges will be there until I'm dead for uh, the rest of my natural life. Yeah, even way past that. I know. <laughs> um but they say that he has only a 30% approval rating in Kentucky. And you had on the front page of the Times, I don't remember whether it was the Sunday Times or not, all those people who came for the free medical care because Kentucky hadn't uh, accepted the Medicaid uh, extension. Um, is there any way uh, or any kind of candidate from Kentucky who can beat him? Uh, I think it's going to be hard. I really do. He's just super... Uh 
is not popular particularly in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. You know, his his approval numbers are not that high. Right. But, you know, money talks in these elections and he's going to have a lot of money and he will do whatever it needs to be uh, done to, to win re-election. And he, uh, as, as we've been talking, if he is, is the majority leader, uh, it doesn't matter who's in the White House because he has proven himself to be right. he very, care. very adept at this. He, he's... He thinks he's doing the right thing, but he, he likes to win a lot. And he can be, you know, he can be pushed and changed. The criminal justice reform bill is a good example. He totally resisted that up to the last minute. Even Chuck Grassley, who had carried Mitch McConnell's water on all these judges. And Grassley wanted this vote on criminal justice and McConnell continually would throw out Willie Horton, right? This is what they he still thought about. And Grassley finally, with the help of the Cokes, by the way, uh, convinced them to do uh, criminal justice reform. So, you know, if you put enough pressure on him, and John Stewart just put enough pressure on him, uh, you can you can win. But it, he's, he's a very tough character. Hmm. Very tough. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm not going to talk about Mitch McConnell, but the Democrats. Why is it that the Democrats in the Senate have not fought for Supreme Court nominations like the Republicans have, including but not limited to Merrick Garland? And in that regard, I heard what you said about they assumed Hillary would win. But what about between early November and January 20th? They still didn't do anything. Why? Well, the Republicans had that Majority, but this is just a fact. Republicans have always been more dedicated to pursuing judicial nominations and pushing judges than Democrats. Democrats kind of think, okay, we're just going to have the right policies and we're going to do the right thing and it'll it'll all work out. And it didn't work for them. Now they have actually stepped up. You've got a new group, Demand Justice, that's headed by Brian Fallon, uh, Hillary's campaign spokesman, and they're very, very aggressive. In fact, uh, Brian Fallon worked for Chuck Schumer, and now he's kind of torturing Chuck Schumer from the left, and Chuck calls him Lefty Brian. Uh, but the uh, – and you're going to see this. I'll bet you hear it again in the debate tonight. There's a lot of discussion on the Democratic side now. What, what are we going to do about the courts? And it's going to be driven by these decisions today. There's, do we add – seats to the court? Do we term limit justices? Do we get rid of the filibuster? But to do any of that stuff, you got to get back in the majority. And it's going to be hard for them in this next election to get back in the majority. There'd have to be a pretty big, pretty big wave. This this go, goes back to at least Lyndon Johnson when he yeah, sweet-talked right okay. Arthur Goldberg off the Supreme Court. Right. And, and time after time, with a couple of exceptions, the Democrats have been p- playing softball with the courts when the Republicans are playing hardball. Yeah, and I'm know, really interested in, in well, part your of it was, notion of why that it was, is. Part of it was patronage. I mean, these were judge, federal judiciary posts used to be patronage jobs. These were the, the positions that Democrats and senators would hand out to their, you know, influential lawyer friends back home. And they didn't really take them seriously until the Reagan era. And, uh, you know, they've gotten better about that, but they, they just don't treat it the same. But I, like I said, I think they're aware of it now because they're getting these decisions uh, that are jammed down them. Harry Reid, you know, he didn't want to do much on the courts and, uh, 
But then he got a decision that went against one of his interests in Nevada, and he figured out that, well, we need to make a change. So I think this is evolving, but it's getting more and more important. Part of the reason I wrote this book was because people don't pay enough attention to this. This is a huge thing, as uh, the woman said over there. There's going to be people that are being appointed today. They're going to be on the court in 2050, you know, and there's going to be decisions coming down, and people are going, wow, who appointed that person? And then they'll... Was Donald Trump president? You know, that's what people will be saying. If I heard you correctly, you um, said that um, the political limitations of Joe Biden played a role in this. Oh, was Maureen? Was it okay then? Apologies for me directing that question to you, Um, Maureen. Could you could you um, explain a little bit about um, uh, why you said that and what and what his role or failure was? It became known as the Biden rule, and it's a big part of the book. Yeah. So Joe Biden in uh, 1992 gave this big speech because they were worried that George H. W. Bush was going to try and appoint a justice during an election year. It was all hypothetical, but it was a typical Biden speech. He went on forever. I mean, in the congressional record, the speech is like eight pages, which honestly is like the length of the Bible by the size type in the congressional record. And Biden didn't even remember this. So, uh, because he's given a lot of speeches. So what happened is Scalia dies. uh, Everybody starts to kind of gather information for to support their argument there's about a everybody's gone there's about a week between they come back and uh the republicans have dug up this speech where biden had said you know if there's a supreme court vacancy we shouldn't go ahead in a presidential election year totally hypothetical but the republicans grabbed on to that i was there when chuck grassley started talking about it on the floor of the senate and i go this is going to be a big problem and I said that to the Democrats who were running the Senate at the time. And, and they the go, White House was shocked. Yeah, right? well, they didn't. Biden hadn't warned anyone that he had given this speech. I honestly didn't remember it. And uh, the White House and the Chuck Schumer's folks and Reid are all saying, oh, that's no big deal. I'm like, no, it is a big deal. But this is where Mitch McConnell says the night Scalia dies, he goes, you know, he knew Scalia pretty well. So he's kind of you know, absorbing his death and thinking about his um, own relationship. But then he goes, I immediately turned to the politics of it, which, of course, is Mitch McConnell, right? He waited about five minutes. And so it was funny because I'm sitting at home. I'd just come home from band practice, actually. I'm sure Larry remembers this. And trying to say, okay, when can we start talking about the politics of this? Because you're supposed to leave, you know, time to... Uh, for reverence for Antonin Scalia. No, McConnell, boom, right out of the box. But, uh, and McConnell's sitting there and he goes, I know the Democrats would do the same thing to us. And because- but Is that true? No, and I've said this, who said who said no? <laughs> no, I, I said this in another presentation the morning and I did. I said, no, because the Democrats are for government. They would be, they would think about doing it. They would say they were going to do it. didn't this all start with Bohr? And then they would be shamed into considering it. I mean, because they just can't, we're good government people. Well, it started with Bohr. It started with a lot of people. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. Estrada? Estrada is the guy I focus on in my book, because this is where they start filibustering appeals court judges and the Democrats did this. And it's always tit for tat in Congress. One side does something, the next, when the 
when the next side gets their chance, they do something and do it more. And this is just what escalated into blocking Merrick Garland. Do you think that um, Joe Biden's talking up his ability to work with Republicans, even the old segregationists, is a good thing? Or do you think that that Congress well, is gone? What do you guys think? <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. No, and it's, I think Joe Biden is, uh, to me, talking about a Republican Party that doesn't exist anymore. You know, there's not, no one wants to make a deal on either side. In fact, today's deal was pretty unusual. The only people who've been making deals in the Congress since Trump got in is the members of the Appropriations Committee in the House and Senate. Because guess what? Both parties in Congress really like to spend money, no matter what they say. So they, they will find a way to spend money. But other stuff just isn't working. McConnell thinks he had a great relationship with Biden. They cut a lot of deals together, including the fiscal cliff deal. Uh, Six weeks of unemployment for uh, the tax cuts. Well, that's, that's what the Republicans would say, that he liked to work with Biden because he would cut bad deals. Biden. Uh, so, you know, but he had a deal. But I think that this is going to be a problem for Joe Biden going forward in this campaign. We'll see how he addresses it tonight. You know, he's under a lot of pressure. And that uh, philosophy of his, that extra mile to work with Republicans, is why Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court. Well, and you think about that. The Democrat, I always have to remind people about Clarence Thomas. They go, oh, well, the Republicans put him in. The Democrats were the majority the in the Senate. Joe Biden put him in. And they did not filibuster because you didn't filibuster judges back then. And uh, I mean, now that when you think about that and the way nominations play out, it's hard to imagine, really. Joe Biden shut down Anita Hill's two corroborating witnesses and didn't let them testify. And Clarence Thomas was in. So, yes. Um, thank you. Um, you've given us some really interesting insights into the cultural uh, and somewhat the economic uh, aspects of this confrontational state. Would you comment on the demographic aspects? Yeah, well, that's interesting because here's where I think the problem for the court is. To me, this is a legitimacy issue of the court. And uh, we're in a country that's changing dramatically demographically. And I write in the book that... I'm looking in the future and you're going to have this very conservative court that could really be out of step with much of the country, uh, at least where the people live. I'm not talking about Wyoming and uh, North Dakota. But and I think that just to just to name a few. Uh, and I think that's the problem. It's a legitimacy issue for the court. The Supreme Court and federal courts rely on our basic trust in their credibility. They don't have an army. They can't enforce anything. And sometimes the federal government is in desegregation, has to step in, but the courts have no police power. If the public loses confidence in the courts because of the changing demographics of this country, as opposed to the people who are sitting on the court, I think it's a real, I think it's a real big problem. I don't know that that's going to happen, but you can kind of see it coming. 
I always say, you know, I like, I'm an optimistic person and everybody's kind of bummed about the pessimistic nature of my book. And on, on uh, Morning Joe... You the, called it a death spiral. <laughs> well, I agreed. I agreed that it could be a death spiral. But, you know, I don't... I, I honestly look at this and go, how do we get out of this? Because, so we're having a death spiral in an apocalypse. Yeah. But so, you know, there's people who say, well, let's go back to the 60 vote margin for judges. But, you know, no one's going to do that. You, you, you don't, you never go back. So I think it's a big, big problem. I hate to be uh, sort of the skunk. Wait, wait, but w let's get to people who haven't asked one. Will, well, did you have? He, wait, did Will's, you ask one yet? Yeah. No, Will yeah. hasn't. Yeah, first of all, Maureen, it just feels thank like you he for introducing, <laughs> yeah, that Maureen Dowd, everyone. This is our friend, Will Carter. <laughs> we love Maureen Dowd. Carl, thank you for your book. I, what do you see the next four years looking like? Will uh, used to work for Senator John Warner, who right. Carl and I really respect. Okay, so, I mean, I think it's, you know, we're, we're in a very partisan, polarized time. And, you know, there's a lot of ways this could play out. I hate to say it, Trump, I hate to say it to this group. This is not my position, but, you know, Trump could easily be reelected. And the... Uh, you could have the exact same setup you have right now. I do think the Democrats will hold the House in the next election. They've got a lot of advantages. You could have Republican Senate and Trump. You could also have a Democratic president and a Republican Senate led by McConnell. I don't, you know, I'm not looking for any big change here. But since Will used to work for John Warner, one of my favorite parts of the book, I'm going to totally blow one of my best stories in the book. So... Uh, John Warner, tremendous person, but also central casting senator, right? He just right. really looked the part, and he was this great, distinguished Virginia gentleman. And, yeah, he really, yeah, well, so <laughs> the Gang of 14 uh, in 2005, when Bill Frist was majority leader, and they were first talking about detonating the nuclear option, and of course there's this last-minute deal by these Gang of 14, including John Warner, who was a big part of it. And so John Warner's on the floor and he gives this great rousing speech about, you know, minority rights in the Senate and how the Senate is so great. And it was just this really great sort of historical take on the Senate and the meaning of minority rights. So for you in the Capitol, so we're standing out at the elevators, you know, where we can grab senators and he comes walking out and I said, geez, Senator, I go, that was a really great speech. You should write a book. And, of course, he had been married to Elizabeth Taylor, one of, like, four or five wives that he had. And, <laughs> and so he's like, uh, if I write a book, all anyone wants to know is how Liz was in bed. <laughs> and he's getting on the elevator, and I go, I go, well, maybe that could be a chapter, Senator. That'd be <laughs> and he goes, oh, no, more than a chapter. <laughs> and, then the, and then the elevator doors close, and he's gone. <laughs> Yeah, I have a good John Warner story, too. So um, one time he stood up to the W White House on something, and I called him, and I said, how were you able to do that? And uh, he said, he paused, and he goes, well, I once walked onto the... Um, the annual convention of the Virginia State Legislature with Liz Taylor in a zebra skin silk <laughs> pant, uh, jumpsuit. And once you've done that, you're not afraid of anything. <laughs> 
Senator Warner is still alive and, and truly a great guy. He was one of those guys in the Senate who really did work the middle and just a, just a, somebody you could really look up to. Walt. So I have a serious question and a gossipy question. Oh, God. The serious question is how much did the Ted Kennedy uh, Bork nomination change the dynamics of Supreme Court nominations? And the gossipy question is you mentioned uh, – Mitch McConnell got rich in office. Harry Reid lived in the in the Four Seasons. How are they doing that? We know how Lyndon Johnson was doing it. How are how are these guys doing that? Uh, so he was uh, well. He was asking one how much of Bork was the influence on all this, and also how did Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell get rich in office? Uh, so the Bork thing. I was just in a Frontline documentary. They did a they did a judicial thing. They really put a lot of emphasis on Bork. Uh, the conservatives were really remain bitter over Bork, but I think some of that was passed. And I do think Estrada and some of those more modern uh, fights really kind of colored the fight going into the nuclear option in 2013. And I think one of the interesting things about the Bork fight, you know, Kennedy's speech is so famous, you know, Robert Bork's America and all that. Uh, but if you watch that speech and you can call it up on C-SPAN. So Kennedy ran out there to do the speech the day that Reagan nominated Bork to kind of get ahead of it. But he didn't want to be too bombastic, not to set off the Republicans, but he didn't want to set off the Democrats who weren't used to these kind of fights over judges. So if you watch his speech, it's sort of delivered. Teddy Kennedy used to deliver these speeches where you'd be out in the hallways of the Senate. You could hear him bellowing in there. I mean, it was really loud. And, and uh, this one was sort of delivered a little low key because he was trying to make his points without upsetting a lot of people and well you've been in there a bunch of times and there's staffs milling around and everything and so it's it's a different speech now i asked harry reed once i go i actually asked him i said how'd you get rich in the senate and you know very shrewd lawyerly guy and he said when he was a beginning lawyer that he had uh used to have coffee with all the old lawyers in vegas right god knows what went on at these tables and uh they advised him on real estate investing and he bought up all this desert land that later was developed and but certainly I'm sure with some federal help of interchanges and stuff I mean it is it is a little disconcerting that they can and Mitch McConnell but our recent stories talked about how he actually was given money by his wife's family so but you know, you're sitting in there making 175000 a year as a senator and walking out with millions of dollars. You know, people do wonder how that happens. Um, we got like one more, I think. Oh, hey, Sandra. Hi, Maureen. Hi. We're, we were former colleagues. Yeah, yeah. The- Sandra McElwain and I, we worked at the start together. Um I have two things. One, I traveled with John and Liz. Um, and <laughs> wow. Let she me traveled with John Warner and Liz. Ad infinitum. It was an experience that I, I'm not going into all the anecdotes, but <laughs> <laughs> believe me. Um, but he would never have gotten elected without Liz. Nobody could have cared less. They didn't want to see John Warner, but boy, were they bonkers for Liz. That's got nothing to do with my question, really. Um, it just was unbelievable. John Warner would be happy that we're talking about him and Liz at this Oh, moment. yeah, well, yeah, I, I've stayed in touch with John because it was such an unbelievable experience. But anyway, my question is, and a lot of people have written it, and nobody will deal with it. When Trump, if Trump loses the election, he's not going 
anywhere. He's going to say, I mean, I don't have to tell you all. He's going to say it's fake news. What do we do? Does John Roberts come up <laughs> on his, you know, with his saber and get him out? Maureen, what, what the heck do we do? Well, uh, Chris Buckley wrote a satirical novel where the president loses the election but just stays in his pajamas padding around <laughs> the White House and in this case tweeting. But uh, Carl, what do you think? I, I mean, I, I think that's a bridge too far for everyone. I, I do think that he will. I Maybe I'm wrong and you feel free to call me up you know, in January 2021 and say, why were you adult? I don't think that he would try that. I, I really don't. He said in the interview the other day, he's only joking. You know, it's kind of the half joking thing. But he but isn't joking. I, I don't think that he would try to stay. And if he did, I do not think that congressional Republicans who have been very supportive would support him in that. I honestly don't. I, maybe at, I'm maybe I'm naive, but I really don't see that. a tweet that. where it's like Trump 2016. You know, he does do that. And I know he thinks it really gets people riled up. I don't, I just don't see it. It would be so anti-American, but... but he, <laughs> I walked into that one. I know that. Okay. Well, uh, on that note, uh, Carl is going to sign books, and I told him he should call his book Holding Court because he loves to hold court, and he will be holding court here and signing books, and the book is excellent. I actually said that my alternative title for the book, because uh, it involves Scalia's death and uh, the uh, fights over... Uh, Garland, uh, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. It could be called uh, three nominations and a funeral, but we didn't. <laughs> but we didn't. We didn't. We didn't go with that. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of the Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.